Well, good evening to you all. You're very welcome. Tonight, we're going to look at philosophy and compassion. And the question we're going to have to face is, are we strong enough to be compassionate? So, to understand compassion, we need to understand love. For compassion is one of the qualities or manifestations of love. Wherever there is compassion, there is love. And if there is no love, there cannot be compassion. So first of all, we look at love. And the Shankaracharya, the man that the school put all its questions to, this is what he has to say about love. That every creature has pure love within its nature and all strive to express this love through the creation. How this love is expressed and how much of it is expressed depends on the measure and truth of knowledge in the person. If our knowledge is that we love our friends and hate our enemies, that will determine the expression and extent of our love. Where love is pure and knowledge is true, then there is no injustice no compulsion, nor pressure, no darkness, no partiality, no preference towards anyone. When ignorance rules and not knowledge, then instead of the love being for all, it is directed in the interests of smaller groups, such as the family, or even reduced to the individual himself. The fruits of love are wanted for himself or the group he considers close to himself. But the essential feature of love is sharing with the world. Anyone with love in his heart always shares everything for the sake of love. And love is therefore very generous. Without love, one becomes a miser and holds on to everything for private use only. If we have love in our heart, we see everyone as family, so we treat everyone with affection. With love, we wish to impart bliss to everyone. We wish to see everyone healthy and everyone availing freedom. Without love, the person does not worry if others are denied knowledge, bliss, health and freedom. Even in families, the person without love will deny everything to all other members of the family while going to any length to seek these things for themselves. Now, with love in the heart, compassion will arise naturally. And that is sharing other passions, good or bad, so as to minimize any restriction in the enjoyment of bliss by everybody. So it should be noted that with compassion, the heart is open and thus the joys and sorrows of all are shared. Effectively, our heart becomes a reflection of the heart of the universe. Those without love create a hard core around their hearts which shuts out emotive communion. 
They do not share the joy or the suffering of the world. Now, this world of compassion happens naturally without volitional force. We do not make ourselves compassionate. It happens naturally, just like a natural smile. And in this situation, one just participates in whatever situation presents itself and works without looking for any result. We do not make a mission out of it because we are free of any desire for a result. We then are much more alive to all events and situations and do what is needful. So such people do not give an impulse from themselves, but the impulse arises from the situation itself, and they simply do the job. They do not have a selection criteria as to whom they will help. All who are in need are helped, whether they are good or bad. And there's a story about a wise man called Bang Kai. And he had a number of followers and he ran this monastery. In the monastery, one of the disciples turned out to be a thief and stole some of the money of the monastery. And then a while passed and he stole again. And the rest of the disciples went to Bang Kai and said, we demand that he be thrown out or else we will leave because he's not worthy of this work. And Bang Kai said to the rest of the disciples, well, you better leave then, because you have the knowledge of good and bad, but this man doesn't. And if I don't teach him, who will teach him? So you can leave and he can stay. Getting a sense of the quality of the man that they were following, they all decided to stay. <laughs> and as Jesus said... But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you. So that is what is love. Well, what is true compassion? And the Dalai Lama, this is what he says, that compassion is a state of mind that is non-violent, non-harming and non-aggressive. It is a mental attitude or the wish for others to be free of their suffering and is associated with a sense of commitment, responsibility and respect towards others. And this respect for others is not that this or that person is dear to me. True compassion is based on the rationale that all human beings have an innate desire to be happy and overcome suffering just like we do. They have a fundamental right to fulfill this natural aspiration. Man is one, and therefore his goal or destiny is one. And on the basis of this equality and commonality, we develop an affinity and closeness with others. And with this as a foundation, we feel compassion, whether the other is a friend or an enemy. It is based on their fundamental right 
rather than anything to do with the state of our heart. So true compassion is separate from any personal feelings. Basically, it's nothing to do with you. If we are compassionate only to our friends, then our compassion will be tainted by attachment. And this attachment will make it less sound and less durable, and it will be distorted by preferences and by the need for success or reward or appreciation or whatever. So genuine compassion is unbiased. It is not only for the poor, but also for the rich. It is not just for those known to us, but also for those unknown. It extends to everyone. And one should not only help others, but seek to not cause misery to anyone. And our pursuit of happiness should not infringe on the rights of others, nor create more suffering for others. Now, first of all, we must be compassionate to ourselves. If we cannot be compassionate to ourselves, then we cannot be compassionate to others. And being compassionate to ourselves, we can then cultivate it, enhance it, and extend it to include everybody else. Compassion arises because of the recognition of the self in another. And it is recognizing that their suffering is our suffering. And it's a bit like if you take the body is a single unit. So if your hand or your hands were busy, occupied with something else, and an itch occurs in your back, the hands will not say, I'm too busy writing or holding a pint of Budweiser or whatever they are doing. They will immediately stop whatever they're doing to relieve the itch of the back. The reason being that if you relieve the itch of the back, the entire body enjoys peace again. Now, compassion is being in tune with ourselves, with others, and with the whole world. And it is a constant, like love, not just something which is aroused in extreme circumstances, like some tragedy in the world. Compassion is not just a feeling. It results in responsibility and it results in action. Now, to be compassionate, you need a strong heart. We have to be able to rise above our own suffering. If we succumb to our own suffering, we will be in no position to help others. This means that we have to be able to put aside negative emotions such as sorrow, envy, greed, anger, hatred, and all these things. For if these occupy the heart, we cannot be compassionate. So our hearts need to be strong and full of hope, perseverance, endurance, and faith. We need to believe that transformation is possible, that all things are possible, that the selfish can become generous, that the miserable can become joyful, and that the rich can become beneficent. 
We need not to be angry at our own failings. And more importantly, not angry at the failings of others. We need not to see ourselves as superior to the less fortunate, to the mean and nasty. It takes strength of heart to accept people as they are, to reach up to them if they are higher, and to reach down to them if they are lower. People can only progress from where they are, so they must be met from where they are. And Leon McLaren, the man who founded the school, when I was giving out about certain students in the School of Philosophy, without any compassion in my heart, he said to me, full of compassion, he said, always work with what you have. So you work with people's natures. Do not demand that they be different from what they are, because that's impossible. The nature of someone is the strength of that person, and that is what is worked with. Now, the weak-hearted are sensitive, so they are sensitive to criticism or insult, and injustice overwhelms them. The indifference of the world angers them. But true compassion is constant, and that constancy is strength of heart. Just like a surgeon who keeps operating, whether the patients live or die, whether they are grateful or not, or whether they are worthy of life or not. Now, what is not true compassion. And it's important to be clear on this. Compassion is not sentimental. It is not sentimentality. It is not being nice to everyone. It is caring for everyone and that may or may not involve niceness. Sentimentality clouds the issues Often it denies the facts and is simply being moved by the event. It often supports irresponsibility by promoting mercy where mercy is not appropriate. People are responsible for their actions and they should not be treated otherwise. Again, the Shankaracharya said that love works either through justice or mercy. And justice works better when society is inflicted with untruth, and mercy works better when there is real desire for forgiveness. So if there is real desire for forgiveness, then be merciful. Otherwise, administer justice. Both are love, and both are manifestations of compassion. And there's a marvelous example in the Bible of Jesus when the lady caught in adultery was brought before him. And according to Judaic law at that time, that if a lady was caught in adultery, then she would be stoned to death. And so they brought this lady to Jesus and said, what shall we do with her? 
And he simply answered, well, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. So they left one by one the oldest first. Because the older you are, the more sins you have. (laughs) And eventually all there was was Jesus and this lady. And he eventually looked up and he said, had nobody condemned thee? And she said, no, Lord. And he said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. So he did not judge her, but he gave her her direction. He did not presume that she was innocent because he said, go and sin no more. If there is sentimentality in our hearts, then we get compassion under ignorance. And again, the Shankaracharya has spoken about this. What he said, there is compassion under wisdom and there's compassion under ignorance. And when you have compassion under ignorance, you are moved by the misery of the other person to become miserable yourself. So all you have is a multiplication of misery. And if there is compassion under wisdom, then you are moved by the misery of the other person to relieve the misery in the other person so there is elimination of misery. And he further says that it is important that those with open hearts do not take the misery of others unto themselves. The idea of help is valid only if there is a way to help the situation and a capacity to deliver. A doctor sees many patients and by training is devoted to help relieve the misery of the patients. However, he does not get emotionally involved. Otherwise, he will not be able to do the job for which he was trained. He knows that if one dies, it is simply the laws of nature at work. So help is good if done with pleasure, but not at a cost of unfruitful misery. If there is sentimentality, then there will be attachment. And that attachment will manifest as us becoming miserable. Becoming miserable ourselves, we lose our vitality and therefore our capacity to help others. The attachment may also express itself as bargaining with our attachment. And so this will be as follows, like, I will be compassionate, but you must be grateful, or else I will stop being compassionate. Or else I will be compassionate, but you must reform, or else I will be resentful. You do not bargain with your compassion. It is not having our desires fulfilled It is not getting our way. It is helping others to get their way. So do not seek to make them act and live like us, but seek to help them to be more true to themselves. Maybe not as uh, frequently as in the past, but there was a tendency to seek to westernize the East as if this was an advantage. With attachment, 
often a mission to help others will develop, particularly those who are perceived as less adequate than us. Then we may want to help those who do not want help because we've made a mission out of it. So we become like the over-enthusiastic Boy Scout dragging little old ladies across the road who don't want to go across the road. <laughs> or with attachment, we can have anger or hatred towards those who frustrate our mission. So we can be like a pacifist who hates soldiers. Or hating the rich who do not give to our cause or who live frivolous lives. Pity has nothing to do with true compassion. Pity is always tainted by arrogance. It involves seeing others as unequal and inferior. With pity, reason is overturned by feelings, and we do not need to pity anyone. As Mother Teresa said when people came to her, we want your hands, not your pity. Now there are certain things that those with open hearts need to avoid. Because it was said previously, how love is expressed is determined by the measure and truth of knowledge. So love or compassion must be supported by knowledge or reason. And again, the Shankaracharya said, those who have love in their hearts and reason in their minds feed on bliss. But those whose hearts say one thing and minds say another, they feed on pleasure and pain for they have not realized unity. So our compassion needs to be supported by reason. We need to be lovers of justice and not haters of injustice. Lovers transform the world and haters only divide the world. Haters have never brought peace to the world. So there's a need for detachment a detachment born of understanding. Otherwise, we would be powered by compassion without knowledge, and the misery of the world will defeat us. We will be burnt out by all our good deeds. We will be left either with skepticism or with despair rather than hope, a nihilist defeated by life. We should avoid righteousness and avoid judgment. It is all based on us knowing better. We may think that we know what is best for the poor. And there's a story about a rich man who befriends a tramp who sleeps every night on a park bench in Hyde Park. The rich man engages in conversation with him and he wonders, he says, how can you sleep at night on that hard bench? And the tramp says, I sleep beautifully every night because every night I dream that I'm sleeping in the Ritz. 
So the rich man is moved by this, and he decides what he'll do is he will treat the tramp to a night in the Ritz. So he organizes this, and the tramp spends the night in the Ritz. And the rich man meets up him the next day, and he says, how did you sleep? He said, terribly. I dreamt all night I was sleeping on a park bench in Hyde Park. <laughs> It is not sufficient that we want to help. It is essential that those whom we wish to help want to be helped. We cannot help those who do not want to be helped. We would simply be wasting our time. And there's a story which illustrates this from the East, and it's about a wise man in this tradition, there is said to be a goddess called Annapurna, who is the goddess of food. And the wise man wanted that no human being would go without food. So he practiced austerities and he dedicated himself to this goddess. And eventually, she was moved by his dedication and she appeared before him. And he asked her that she would feed the whole world and that nobody would go hungry. But she replied to him, I can grant that anyone who comes to you will be looked after, even if the whole world comes, but no one who does not, because I can reward one who makes efforts to come, but not those who do nothing. Violation of the law of nature will create chaos. And the wise holy man agreed. The principle of help is based upon effort and positive knowledge. Therefore, men with compassion can help only those who come to seek help. They need not go to help any and everyone, for such help is never honored and never appreciated. It is not fruitful. Those who go to the wise only they can become wise. Now, in order to fully understand compassion, we need to understand suffering. And there are two types of suffering. One is pain, which is physical, and the other is mental, like grief or sorrow. And physical pain can be multiplied and increased with the addition of mental sorrow. Basically by resisting the physical pain. It is possible therefore to increase or decrease the effect of physical pain. The wise eliminate all the burden of physical pain. Ramakrishna, who was a sage from India in the 19th century, when he was dying of throat cancer, which was extremely painful, his disciples said, why don't you cure yourself? And effectively he said, because it's not a burden to me. It is only physical pain. Now, thinking we are the body, we are often more moved by the physical pain of others rather than by their suffering, i.e. their mental pain. But the wise see it Otherwise, and again, there's a story which 
illustrates this, of a wise man who lives in a cave, and it's a very damp old cave, and the water drips in, and he's only got one loincloth, and there are no comforts at all. And a man from the village comes every day to bring him simple food. And one day the man stops and engages in conversation with the wise man. He says, you know, sometimes when we're down in the village and we look up at you there in your damp old cave in very hard circumstances, we are filled with admiration for your endurance. And the wise man says, you know, sometimes when I'm up in this cave, I look down on the village and I see all your anger and your hatred and your envy and I'm really moved by your endurance, your capacity to put up with all of that. Now, pain produces comparatively little suffering. The greatest and most extensive pain arises from sorrow, which is internal. And do not think that the greatest suffering of man is located in poor countries. I don't know whether you've ever been to India. I haven't myself. But it's quite a common observation of people who have been to India and they see the remarkable levels of poverty there, but also a remarkable level of happiness, a greater happiness that we seem to enjoy with all our worldly goods. Mental suffering is caused fundamentally by the belief that the things of this world can bring lasting and limitless happiness. And the Shankaracharya says that if we decide once and for all, that things of the world cannot bring permanent and full happiness, that we would be free of misery forever. So imagine that, the single cure for all your suffering. A simple decision that the things of this world will not bring you permanent and full happiness. We need to understand that all suffering derives from our misconceptions about the nature of reality, the knowledge of who I am in truth. Because we see that this is a mistaken perception, we can then realize that suffering can be eliminated. Once we remove the mistaken perception, we shall no longer be troubled by suffering. Not knowing the solution, it would be all too easy for our compassion to be overcome by hopelessness or even despair. But knowing that suffering is therefore avoidable, our sympathy for people's inability to extricate themselves from it will grow stronger. Now with our own suffering, there can often be a sense of being overwhelmed, burdened, a feeling of helplessness. There can be a dullness, as if we had been kicked in the head and the mind simply won't function properly, that it cannot deal with the situation. But when there is compassion for the suffering of another, although there may be a feeling of discomfort at their suffering, there will be an underlying alertness to their need 
and not numbness. There will be a determination and not a succumbing because we have voluntarily and deliberately accepted another suffering for a higher purpose. In marriage, the essential pact is that we will face the events of life together, that life will be met as one. So never promise your spouse that you will make them happy. It may not be possible. But what you can promise is that you will meet the events of life together as one. So the other is never left to suffer alone, not even for a moment. And with this, then there is nothing that you cannot face if you face it together. And thus is the greatness of marriage. It is not a piece of paper, but an unbreakable bond between two, a manifestation of connectedness and commitment to each other. The wise effectively marry the world because they never leave anyone to suffer alone. So how are we to grow in compassion? And the first thing for us is to practice openness and true sensitivity and intimacy. Firstly, we need to come out of the box of our little lives. We are not separate from the rest of the world. Einstein said, a human being is a part of the whole that we call the universe, a part limited in time and space. He experiences himself, his thoughts and feelings, as something separated from the rest, a kind of optical illusion of his consciousness. The illusion is a prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and to affection for only the few people nearest us. Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living beings and all of nature. So we should stop protecting our hearts, stop living cautiously with our love, we should be like the child and embrace fully and give fully. What is required is emotional abandon. Who does not deserve our love or our compassion? Are you willing to say that she does but he doesn't? So we should develop empathy and be close to others and know them from the inside. We should know how the other person feels and how they would respond to what we say or do. For empathy to arise, it is necessary to drop the limits of our own identity and to enter the identity of the other person. The closer we are to people, the more unbearable we will find their suffering. 
we would be unable to maintain our indifference to their misery. And this closeness will result in a feeling of responsibility, of concern for the person leading to action to relieve their misery. The second thing we need to do in order to grow in compassion is we need to develop humility. We need to understand that there but for the grace of God go I. You could ask yourself, who in truth is better than another? And this humility leads to a decrease in judgments both of oneself and of others. And the decrease in the number of judgments is the beginning of compassion. We must stop punishing ourselves. This simply takes away our vitality. So the rule is do not criticize anyone, including yourself, even silently in the head. Khalil Gibran, in his book, The Prophet, he said this. He said, oftentimes have I heard you speak of one who commits a wrong as though he were not one of you, but a stranger unto you and an intruder upon your world. But I say that even as the holy and the righteous cannot rise beyond the highest, which is in each one of you, so the wicked and the weak cannot fall lower than the lowest which is in you also. And as a single leaf turns not yellow, but with the silent knowledge of the whole tree, so the wrongdoer cannot do wrong without the hidden will of you all. Like a procession, you walk together towards your God-self. You are the way and the wayfarers. And when one of you falls down, he falls for those behind him, a caution against the stumbling stone. Aye, and he falls for those ahead of him, who though faster and surer of foot, yet removed not the stumbling stone. The third thing that needs to be developed in order to grow in compassion is to be grateful. Be grateful that we have the capacity to give. Be grateful to the receiver that he gives us the opportunity to give. For as a giver, we are rewarded with the experience of well-being. Gratitude really opens the heart. And we should express our gratitude, particularly to those closest to us. Tell them that they have, and how they have, enriched our lives. Write a letter to parent, to wife or husband, to child or dear friend, saying how much they have given to you and how much you appreciate it. Do not wait until the person dies before you say nice things about them. To grow in compassion, 
requires a changed heart. And in what way? If there is lust, i.e. strong desire, or greed or anger in our hearts, these must go as they cause the life to be centered on me and mine. We have to decide for whose sake is my life. Is it for me? Is it for a few? Or is it for all? And this decision has to be made and then life lived in accordance therewith. We need to find the good in everybody. And we should give emphasis to people's good aspects and not concentrate on their weaknesses. And again, as Khalil Gibran says in the book, The Prophet, in your longing for your giant self lies your goodness. And that longing is in all of you. But in some of you, that longing is a torrent rushing with might to the sea, carrying the secrets of the hillsides and the songs of the forest. And in others, it is a flat stream that loses itself in angles and bends and lingers before it reaches the shore. But let not him who longs much say to him who longs little, Wherefore are you slow and halting? For the truly good ask not the naked, where is your garment, nor the houseless, what has befallen your house? In our hearts, emphasize what we have in common. We have body, mind, heart, and the spirit of life. All of us want happiness, and none of us want to suffer. Some are fortunate to search under wisdom, and others are unfortunate to search under ignorance. Thus they do not find it themselves and impinge on others. If we know better, then share our wisdom with them. It will help them, and in sharing our wisdom, will grow. The differences between us are superficial compared to our commonality. They are just differences of colouring, religion, culture, education, etc. Meet people as being the same as you, as being members of the human family, your family. Practice kindness and tolerance and generosity as we would in a family. Without this change in heart, we will feel closed, indifferent, or irritated. We will find that people annoy us. But with a change in heart, there will be a positive and friendly attitude, an openness, and fear and apprehension towards others will disappear. So practice responding first. Be the first to say hello, the first to smile, 
the first to give, and the first to say sorry. We often expect the other person to respond first, and with them thinking likewise, we have a world of isolation and unresolved issues. And finally, with this change in heart, seek to develop a constant compassion, not just that which awakens in extreme circumstances like the tsunami, because the quality of true love is constancy. To grow in compassion, we need to grow in understanding, because compassion requires wisdom. It is not just of the heart. It needs understanding as well. We need to realize the value of compassion. Otherwise, we will not cultivate it. We need to realize that it is something worthwhile. And then we will develop an attraction towards it. And from there, a desire to develop it. And I know a number of you have heard this story before, but it's worth hearing in the light of compassion. And the Shankaracharya tells the story of a king who provides a feast for everybody. And in that feast there is everything you could possibly want in terms of food. But there is a rule of action when you attend this feast. You must wear a bamboo jacket. And for those of you who haven't been at such a feast, a bamboo jacket does not allow you to bend your elbows. He initially invites the peasants of his kingdom and they put on the bamboo jackets and unable to bend their elbows, they cannot get any food. So they cause chaos and misery to themselves and they're asked to leave. And then the merchants are invited in and they put on the bamboo jackets and they fail to get any food as well. And so they leave. And then the princes are brought in and they fail likewise. And eventually the wise of that country are invited and they put on the bamboo jackets and they feed each other. And when everybody knew the trick, then everybody enjoyed and participated in the feast to their full satisfaction. And what the Shankaracharya says is that if people could understand that caring for oneself is bondage while feeding others is freedom, then life could be easy for all. Self-reliance in the worldly setup is a complete illusion. We must recognize that our future is really dependent upon the cooperation and contribution of others. Every aspect of our well-being is due to the hard work of others. None of these would exist for us to enjoy and make use of were it not for the kindness of so many people. You could consider that just for us to attend here tonight has involved the labors of millions of people. Otherwise, you couldn't have got here and we couldn't be sitting here. We're the labors of millions of people. To have a happy and joyful life, most people want good health and material goods and friends and so on. All of these are provided by people, the vast majority of which are unknown to us.
and with whom we have no connection. But in truth, everything and everybody is connected. If we understood life in this way, our appreciation of others would grow as would our closeness and empathy to them. Recognizing that this creation is one of interdependence, we would not mistrust each other. It is important to understand the background of the people we are dealing with, that their standoffishness is more likely due to shyness than to snobbery, that their aggression is more likely due to lack of confidence and fear than to nastiness. The real importance of compassion is that it is the best way to fulfill our own self-interests. If we harbor negative feelings towards others and yet expect them to be friendly towards us, we are simply being illogical. If we want to live in a friendly, happy environment, we must first create the basis for that happy, friendly environment. And I don't know whether any of you have ever been to South Africa, but South Africa still suffers from the effects of its regime of apartheid. And I have been to South Africa. And you really see this. People who sought happiness and health and prosperity for themselves with no concern for the happiness, prosperity and health of others. So you see magnificent houses with 12-foot walls and barbed wire and Rottweilers and people afraid to go out at night because the environment they created is one of hatred and suspicion and enmity and greed. The truth is, if I help another and show concern for another, then I benefit, I feel good, and I have another who wishes me well. It is not difficult to feel compassion for the child in the hospital, the hungry and the homeless, but we must have compassion for all, even those that appear to have everything, those whom we might ordinarily envy. For example, if we appreciate that the happiness of the wealthy is a dependent happiness, a happiness dependent on wealth, and being dependent that it is subject to change, then we will feel compassion for them. Genuine compassion is unbiased and based on reason, and it arises irrespective of the other person's attitude to us. Thus, there are no preferences and no conditions. To be compassionate is to enjoy equanimity and to be detached. It is simply there for the other person because they are a human being. And again, Khalil Gibran says, You often say, I would give, but only to the deserving. The trees in your orchard say not so, nor the flocks in your pasture. They give that they may live, for to withhold is to perish. 
Surely he who is worthy to receive his days and his nights is worthy of all else from you. And he who has deserved to drink from the ocean of life deserves to fill his cup from your little stream. And to grow in compassion, just as we needed a change in heart, we need a change in mind. The mind habitually makes absolute that which is relative. That which will pass, it sees as lasting forever. And that which is of some importance, it makes of absolute importance. It is important to train the mind to see the relativity of the situation. That all things will pass. That it could be worse or to count our blessings. And this wider perspective dissolves the mind from fixation and absolutism, leaving us in a state to be compassionate. Now, to bring this to an end, the will of the absolute is said to be bliss for all, health for all, freedom for all, and knowledge for all. The existence of compassion in man is the proof of the divine in man. Because the man of compassion wishes bliss, health, freedom and knowledge for all. The fulfillment of compassion knows no limits. For him all of mankind is his family and he treats everyone as such. The highest level of compassion is without purpose or intent. It seeks neither the good of others or its own good. It lies in being good, not doing good. There is a simple living without design or conscious reflection. Compassion without for me or from me or for them. It is not my will, but thy will. So I'd like us to listen to two quotes from two men of compassion. And the first is the Shankaracharya and his message to the school when he first met Leon McLaren. And this is what he said. It is not my desire which has to be carried out. The desire which has to be helped is that which arises in people looking for the truth, wishing to acquire the divine life and to make efforts in that direction. And so far as I can, I will always be ready. My door is always open to anyone, known or unknown, Eastern or Western, irrespective of his upbringing or culture, because, in fact, we all come from the same stock. As long as that desire and the decision are strong, permanent and stable, the help will always be available. And another sage called Shanti Dewa said, So long as sentient beings remain, so long as space remains, I will remain in order to serve, 
or in order to make some small contribution for the benefit of others. The greatest single thing that you and I can do at a practical level is to be free of suffering ourselves. And then we will be in a position to help others. It is said that the wise wake up with this prayer on their lips. All be happy. All be without disease. All creatures have well-being and none be in misery of any sort. So, is this what you will wake up with? Is this how you will live your life? And so, are you strong enough to be compassionate? And that's the end of the talk. So, thank you. Ready? Would anybody like to ask a question? Even out of compassion, you could ask. <laughs> Hello. Just thinking there for a minute, it's going to be a very early night. Yes. Um, Shane, you, you were advocating throughout your speech the, the, the primacy, the value, or the importance of uh, compassion, generosity, kindness, uh, consideration, tolerance, and so forth. But in the middle of the speech, it's very hard to take it all in. If you speak for I'm an sorry. hour, you, I yes. wouldn't claim to remember a tenth of it. But in the middle of your speech, you seem to, you, what you were saying without exception, you seem to make an exception in the middle of your speech. And that was referring to people who, you or who judges that they, they decide they don't want help. I wasn't clear on that, if you follow the question. Yes, I do. So can I just follow up with yes. another question, if you don't mind, while I have the mic. Uh, the other thing was the, I appreciate to an extent the joke you made about the fellow in Hyde Park and, and the night you spent in the risk. And I wasn't sure whether you were referring to the, the rich man being self-indulgent or whether you were, in fact, simply making a joke, which I doubt, I doubt if that was the case. Uh, now, given that we were talking about somebody homeless, what was the actual point of the joke? Right, okay. Thank you. The point of the joke was that sometimes we think we know better. We know what's better for people. So that the tramp would actually sleep better in the Ritz than he would on the park bench. And one wants to be very careful about knowing better. So it's just told humorously. But sometimes as a father, you can think you know better how your son or daughter should live their life. One wants to be very cautious about that because the person themselves knows themselves best and they have their own dream to fulfill. You know, you should never drag somebody from a park bench and put them into the Ritz. That's that bit. I won't be able to remember your first question unless I, I deal with it then, but you can come back with a, a third point. The joke is just sounding a precaution against thinking that you know what is best for others. It just may not be so.
Now, the first question... Who makes the judgment that people... You're making an exception, or you appear to be making an exception of, of those, and their qualification was based on, on the presumption that people didn't want help. Yes. And so you, you presumably are making the judgment that they don't want help. Yes, yeah, one doesn't need to be wise as regards this. It's quite often, it's very noticeable, that people are not seeking your advice. There you are giving wonderful solutions to their problems, but they're not seeking it. If they don't seek it, it can have a number of effects. The very best is it has no effect at all. They simply ignore it. The other thing is that they may resent it and resist it and cause them to dig in deeper to their own ignorance. So it's a bit like, and I'll take an extreme example, before an alcoholic will admit that he or she is an alcoholic, telling them that they are an alcoholic and offering them help is a complete and utter waste of time. They may be behaving appallingly and maltreating you and all sorts of things like that. But the thing to do is always to be completely open to them. And then you will recognize that moment where they're willing to admit that they have a condition which needs treatment, and then you offer the help. If you've been at them for years and years and years, to say give up the drink, they may not even be able to hear you in the moment that they could make some movement. So you offer help to those who want help and you don't offer help to those who don't want help out of love for them. Not putting a demand on that you must ask for help, but in order to assist them, make use of the advice you give. Sometimes people come to me for advice. Sometimes they come and they love their problem. Does that make sense? You recognize they, they actually love the problem, and in fact, they love telling you how bad it is and how insoluble it is. And sometimes, if I recognize that, and I see that there's really just a loving of the problem rather than a seeking of the solution, I might ask them a very simple question. I say, do you want to be happy? Would you like to be happy? Ordinarily, they would say yes. And I say, will you take advice? And unless if they say yes, then there's no conversation. They've just managed to inform me how miserable their life is. But if they say yes, they will take advice. Now you know that there's a fruitful ground for that advice. And then you give it fully and generously. And they can make use of it. Otherwise, and this takes great restraint, particularly if you see somebody in misery, it's so easy to be moved by their misery, to want to help them. But it takes great restraint to just wait, just wait for the right time. With my own children, I've noticed that, you know, you, you watch your children grow up and they have to grow up and they have to make their mistakes and they have to sort of fall off the bicycle and they have to do all sorts of things. They have to not study adequately and then study like maniacs with a couple of weeks to go. And you have to know when to offer advice. My own son was doing his final accountancy exams, and I trained as an accountant as well. So I thought I knew what it was like and what needed to be done. Coming close to the exams, he had worked out a system and a method, and I couldn't restrain myself from saying, well, look, why don't you do this? This worked for me. And I mean, I had done this six or seven times, and then one evening I was about to say something to him, and he put both his hands on my shoulder, and he said, back off. Dad. 
back off. And he was absolutely right. He would nearly fail the exams to spite me if I didn't shut up. <laughs> there, there was a desire to help, which you can call compassion, but it wasn't really appreciating the state of the other person, whether they wanted it, whether they were in a position to receive it, or any of those sort of things. So that's the, the point there. Quick response. By the way, put on tape that I am not an accountant. Right. And neither some do people I are intend not to become one. Right. The guy on the park bench, I think, if, you, if I take the point you made about it, but I, I think it's somewhat inappropriate to use that sort of illustration to make the point, uh, particularly if it's gone out on tape. The other aspect of it, you seem to sort of largely define help as sort of advice. And totally, and I please don't misunderstand this. Mm. I think it's sort of somewhat judgmental. I wouldn't generalise, I wouldn't risk generalising the way you do, that you make a judgment that people are wallowing in their, in their problem and they enjoy being a victim. That's a pretty strong, pretty sweeping statement. Yes. I say it, that with all due respect, Shane. Yeah, I understand. If it was a sweeping statement, then it is absolutely inappropriate. But it is a fact that sometimes people do wallow. They're not looking for a solution. I wallow myself at times. I enjoy my misery and I enjoy the attention it brings and the sympathy it gets. So sometimes people do do it. But of course, in the end, everybody wants to be free of misery. As regards the joke, it's important to get the joke. That's all. That's all. It's just important to get the joke. It's actually a very good story. The story was told to His Holiness, and he gave the most stunning answer in relation to that joke as to how man is never satisfied. Like you give him the writs, and he'll find something to complain about. And he said, this is the nature of the mind. He used the joke in a way to explain human nature. And that's the way it should be heard. One is not in any way... That compounds the problem because that's, that's saying that the, the beggar on the bench was ungrateful because some lunatic indulging himself took him with his scrub the neck and dropped him into the Ritz. No, that's compounding now, the, Can I say this? Uh, now, you're adding words like lunatic, which I didn't use. It wasn't a lunatic. It was a rich man who befriended the poor man. It's simply to show, do not think that just because you offer certain things to people, it will make them happy. It won't necessarily produce happiness. You can put a man in a palace and he will hang himself from the nearest rafters. And you can put a man on a park bench and he will sleep soundly. And it's important not to look from the outside. The rich man judged the situation of the tramp from his point of view, that he slept in a very nice soft bed and he assumed that the tramp would like to do likewise. He was wrong. And the only thing we should take from it is that we need to be careful of our judgments. Just need to be careful that we don't presume to know better. That's all. So, Thank you. No problem. Anybody else? Hello, Shane. Um, it's, it's, it's just a comment, really, I suppose, on one of the points you were making about um, the doctors not having, I'm not a doctor as well, uh, having emotional involvement with their patients, yes. which, of course, is for the purpose of what they're doing is possibly a good thing. But do you think not having emo an emotional attachment with their patient, they've also lost, in some cases, compassion for the people who are dying? 
Yes, I think the word emotional involvement needs to be understood. It's used in a particular context. Emotional involvement does not mean the absence of love. You should never be without love. If you're a doctor, whatever. There should always be love in your heart. And you should love health and life and the patient in front of you. But emotional involvement means feelings which distort. Love, true love, doesn't distort. But feelings do distort. So if you see yourself as an Irishman and you're watching a rugby match and, you know, it's Ireland against somebody else and you have strong feelings about being Irish, it will distort your evaluation of the referee's performance. That doesn't mean that you should sort of, you know, switch off the heart while you watch the rugby match because that's... It's a ridiculous thing to do. So the doctor will have absolute love, but not emotional attachment or emotional involvement. This is why, other than in extreme circumstances, a surgeon will not operate on one of his own relatives. That would be a practice. And that's a very good practice because the affection or the emotions would reduce your capacity to be an excellent surgeon. So when it says he doesn't get emotionally involved, it means with the lesser emotions like concern, worry, all of those sorts of things. But love would still remain and therefore compassion would still remain, totally. Does that explain it? Yeah, that's yeah. good. Thanks yeah. that. The word emotion is used to signify something less than love, something at a lower level. Was somebody? Yes. If I have love in my heart and no knowledge or skill, am I lacking in compassion by shoving my mother into an Alzheimer's secure unit today? No, you can't make a, a statement like that. There are no absolutes. So you can't say that nobody should be in an Alzheimer's unit or that everybody should be in an Alzheimer's unit. It all depends on the circumstances. The only thing is, if there's love in your heart, the only thing that is of concern is what is for the best of the person, the person suffering from Alzheimer's. So that is the only concern. Not things like whether I have the patience to care for the person or something like that. It's just what is the need of the person. And so there are people who need to be in Alzheimer's units, and there are other people who don't need to be there. It's a totally individual thing. Sorry, with respect, yeah. an Alzheimer's patient isn't capable of telling you her needs. So I'm forced to make a judgment. Absolutely. And, and there, therefore it's a subjective judgment. It will obviously be influenced by my sentiment, my emotion. Well, it doesn't have to be. Obviously the person can tell you, and that's, that's absolutely true. But you could know the person. So let's say it was one's mother... So you know the person for 40 or 50 years and you would know how they would wish to be treated, what they would wish, because you know them so well. Now this is at a much more minor level. I'm not trying to insult the situation. I have said that on my death I just want to be cremated and the, what do you call the stuff, the dust or whatever you call it, anyway, thrown into the ocean. So it's possible to say that I, I certainly can't say it after death, so I'm saying it now, so everybody knows. And the same way, my own mother, who died recently, was very obvious to me that she would not have enjoyed an old person's home. This was just not her nature. 
And so for as long as possible, for so long as it made sense, the idea was to surround her with the company of the family. Now, as it turned out, she died before any further decisions had to be made. But you can know the person, and you could know how they would wish to be treated. If that's not clear to you, all you can do is just use whatever knowledge you have and make the judgment. But the knowledge should be imbued with love. But in the end, you have to make the judgment. And you may not have all knowledge. Your only responsibility is to use whatever knowledge you do have. And if you do that, well, then you have done your job. There's nothing more that can be done. But ideally, love is supported by knowledge, and knowledge is supported by love. If there is knowledge without love, knowledge can become very harsh. Very, very harsh. And if love is not supported by knowledge, it can become very sort of sentimental or it can become opposed to reason. And so when both work together, then the love tends to remain pure and the reason tends to be reasonable. If there was a question here. Uh, Shane, uh, would you agree that we can fool ourselves into thinking or convince ourselves that we are compassionate or endeavouring to take on a new trait of sorts or whatever and is there a, dis a distinctive uh, quality of a compassionate person for a compassionate person? Yeah, well, it, first of all, it is very easy to fool yourself because I found that in preparing this talk that I had fooled myself up to that moment. Right? That suddenly in reading what the Shankaracharya had said and the Dalai Lama said, that it was of a completely different level and scope and extent and purity than, than I'd ever imagined. And I, I had never seen compassion as a constant. And I'd ne I actually never thought about compassion to myself. I'd always thought of it in relation to other people. It also never struck me that if I didn't overcome suffering myself, I wasn't in a position to help others. I'd first of all to sort of master it myself before being in any position to help others if others wanted to help. I think a lot of us think we're a lot more compassionate than we really are. I think what we are is we are compassionate within small circles. So we are compassionate to those that we have affection for and we're compassionate for particular causes that we believe very strongly in. The things to watch out for are the opposites that are produced by impure compassion. So, as I said, like the pacifist who hates the soldier. That sort of thing. Or a person who you know, really cares for animals and hates people who abuse animals. Never be a hater of anybody or anything. Be a lover of justice and a lover of freedom and a lover of peace. Because love does work and it does transform. The way Mr. McLaren put it beautifully once, he said, when you see a man beating a horse, stop the man beating the horse for the man's sake. Most of us would be moved by the horse's state. Now, he didn't say this, but you can take it from it. Imagine having a heart which was capable of beating a horse. Is that a heart that you would wish for yourself? And the answer is no. So don't allow a man to develop such a hard heart that he could do something like that. Don't hate him, love him. So where compassion is impure or limited in some way, you will always find it produces a dislike for 
the opposite to whatever it is that you love. Whereas love has no opposites, true love. So again, you take the love of a mother for her child. The child will have good and bad in the child, as all children do. But the mother's love stays constant, even if there is badness in the child. It doesn't cause her to love the child any less just because the child happens to have a selfish nature or is less intelligent or something like that. And maybe to finish with this, the, the essence of love is constancy. Saying that you love people when they're very nice to you is not love. It's when they're appalling to you. When they completely mistreat you, misunderstand you, everything. Then, if the love can be there, then you know it's love. And it's exactly the same with compassion. Sometimes we have affection for people and, and we are compassionate and if they seek advice, we give them. But if they don't take the advice, we resent it. You know, I gave you perfect advice. And I, I went out that night. I didn't want to go out and yet you, you asked me to come out. And we resent that they don't take it. Well, they don't have to take it. Your job was to give it. So you've done your job, so you're that's fine. So watch out for those traits. Now, this is extremely challenging stuff. This is not easy. Very, very challenging. But I found, anyway, in the last month or two in writing it, I've had to do a bit of work, to, you know. And I found it extremely interesting waking up in the morning and saying, well, let's see if there can be compassion in the heart today. And it's a moment-by-moment moment challenge. The interesting thing is you find that the heart does open. You realize that people who are angry with you are miserable. So you don't take offense to what they say to you. You just see that they're miserable. And so the job is to restore them to their natural state. A certain, as I said, humility arises that you don't claim virtues in excess of other people's virtues. You just simply realize, well, look, that's the way it unfolded here and it unfolded differently elsewhere. And if you happen to be blessed with a little bit of wisdom or a little bit of virtue, well, then why not give it, give it away freely rather than claiming to be superior? I would just like to ask this question. Yes. At the moment when somebody or maybe a body of people mm. are behaving appallingly towards you yes. and if at this moment, well, you're a human being yes. and so if it's anger, maybe it's not, it's suppressed anger or maybe you're reacting to being treated appallingly. At this moment in time, if you accept what you're being given, then you're going to be just, people will walk over you. So at that particular moment in time, what do you do? How, how, do you, how do you react? I mean, if you just say, I have such compassion for you in my heart, and somebody is really lashing into you. I'm not speaking at all, metaphor, uh, metaphorically, I'm speaking, <laughs> it's actually a situation no, which understand. I've had uh, very recently, as in yesterday. And I really found it very, very difficult to be this person I that yes. I would like to be. And I'm not this virtuous person. I wouldn't ever aspire to be. Mm. Well, maybe I'd aspire to be. I'm certainly not. And, it, you know, it really hit me like a bang. Yes. Uh, that in the moment of real, you know, testing case, 
it's, it's, it's very, very difficult. Uh, it, is, it, is, it is extremely difficult. Again, what was said in the talk, that being compassionate doesn't mean being nice. And it doesn't mean being silent. If people are being rude or violent or unfair, there is a time to tell people that. There is a time to tell people, don't ever speak to me like that. So it doesn't involve niceness. But if you tell people, do not ever speak to me like that, it is out of love for them that you say it, rather than out of offence. The key is the motivation. So it doesn't involve niceness. Sometimes you may have to say very difficult things to people. Very, very difficult things to people. Which, in a way, lack pleasantness. But for their sake. So I remember one incident with my son where he'd behaved very badly considering his upbringing and all that he'd been given. It was, it was bad behavior on his part. You know, he, he was told things straight between the eyes. He was told the truth very succinctly and there was no nice words at the end or the beginning or anything like that at all. What was nice is that he came up to me six months later and he says, I want to really say how thankful I am for you speaking to me that way. It needed to be that way for me to, to hear it. So there was no niceness involved. It was a bit like the surgeon. Sometimes the surgeon has to say, look, we just have to take the leg off. That's the way it is. So don't think that compassion or love means that you behave in such a way that people trample all over you. That is not good for those people. It's not good for them that they develop a habit of exploiting or trampling over silent people. So sometimes our silence or our, our apparent equanimity is really false because it's not in the other person's best interest. Now there are times to be silent. I'll give you two very brief stories to give you the opposite. There was a man that I happened to know and we would be good colleagues and we've known each other for a long time. Anyway, he had taken immense offence to how a partner of mine, a business partner of mine, had behaved. And so he rang me up and demanded to meet me in the Barclay Court at 2.30 today. I said, can I wait till tomorrow? He says, no, it can't. And he was shouting down the phone, absolutely enraged. So anyway, I, I was there for 2.30 because it's better than being dead five minutes later. <laughs> so I was actually there on time. You could feel him coming down Lansdowne Road, right? <laughs> you could feel this pressure sort of building up. And he stormed into the hotel, and he was, he was literally purple with rage. And it was obvious that he had sort of built himself up, and he was just going to literally let it all loose. Now, I'm going to change his name, right? I'm going to just call him Pat. Anyway, he, he came up to me, and I said, how are you, Pat? And he said, don't you try that with me. <laughs> right? And I said, and the point about it, it was true. I said, how are you, Pat? He said, I'm very well. I said, and how's your wife? And how are the children? Because I know the children well. And I said, and how's business for you? And slowly but surely, as he answered these questions, which were genuine questions, he calmed down. 
And when he was calm, I said, okay, now, what do we need to deal with? And then we dealt with it in a very reasonable and rational manner. Now, that was out of love for him. You restored him to reason so he could put points. And he had valid points. My partner had not fulfilled certain obligations, and he had valid points to make. But had he made them in the state that he was in when he entered the hotel, it would have just been useless. It would all have been exaggerated. It was important to return him to a state of equanimity and reason. And one could hear what he had to say and then deal with it. In an opposite situation in this company, which I happen to own a part of, and I happen to be the chairman of the company, one of the employees rang me and started to speak to me in a very abusive way. And I said, don't ever speak to me like that. Don't ever, ever, ever do that. So stop it right now and then just tell me the point. So my voice was as cold as ice. And it was necessary to speak, because she, she was very, very angry, it was necessary to do that and to threaten. If you step over the line, there won't be a job. So she calmed down. And I said, now what's the point? And we dealt with it. But in that case, it wasn't warm. It was as cold as ice, and it used the position of chairman and part shareholder to restore the person to reason. There was no, how are you, and how's the family, and how are the children? But it was necessary to speak to her in that way in order that she didn't step over the line. Because there was a great danger that she would just go too far and that it would be very, very difficult to repair the relationship. And she's an excellent worker and she's a very fine lady. So it would have been a tragedy if it had led to her having to leave the firm. So you use whatever weapon is necessary out of love for the other person. And that's the whole point. So at times you're a bit like Mother Teresa and other times you're a bit like Clint Eastwood. <laughs> Whatever it takes. Could I suggest that we could have some role-playing sessions and maybe in the school <laughs> so we could sharpen our tools? Well, all that's actually necessary is that you're in touch with the person in front of you. When somebody is really insulting you and accusing you unfairly, we stop the connection with them and we go in to take offence and think how unfair this is. But we're missing the fact that the person is in misery in front of us. The real thing is to always stay totally connected to the person in front of you. Don't turn in to take offence. Stay out with them. And then you see that in their eyes there's anger or misery or fear or whatever it is that's causing them to behave in this way. And then it becomes absolutely obvious whether it requires a very gentle approach or patience or maybe just silence. Maybe you just let them say everything they want to say. And at the end, they say, well, okay, well, now you've said everything and let's now deal with the matter. Or else you might stop them very short and say, don't ever speak to me like that. You can't prepare for this. You know in the moment what the other person needs in order to be restored to happiness or reason. So I wouldn't advise any role-playing. Just stay connected with the person in front of you. Just remember that if you're enjoying happiness and the other person has lost their happiness, your job is to restore them to happiness as a human being. It's like if you had food and somebody is starving, it's your job to share your food. If you have happiness and somebody's lost it, it's your job to restore them to happiness. 
If you have reason and they've lost their reason, well, restore them to reason. If you've got peace of mind and they've lost peace of mind, well, then restore them to peace of mind. That's what compassion in practice is. So, was somebody at the yes. There's a gentleman at the back there. Hello, Shane. Just a question. You mentioned about, you know, helping others in, in misery, etc. And you mentioned about, you know, reducing the misery in ourselves. Could you mention just a little on some ways of how we reduce, say, misery in our own lives? In other words, to bring us to a state of happy with ourselves and then, you know, willing to help others. You know, because often, the, the, you know, the, the talk is very suitable for people who are willing to help, but some of us ourselves could be, you know, you know, a little miserable ourselves and then you know, we just want to have just ways of getting around it or having a more positive outlook on life is that kind of yes well th there were a number of practical steps but I'm just going to give you uh, and I'd have to do the talk again then so that wouldn't oh, be no, just, just, no no but I just, just deal with one, kind of one, uh, one point yeah. mm. just one practical point what you find is that where misery arises the mind has narrowed in its focus. Really narrowed. And what it's done is it's made something absolute, which in other circumstances wouldn't bother you at all. We happen to be building a house beside the house that we live in. Right? So there's about a hundred yard gap. And the house is near completion, so there is a front door on it, and there's a key to the front door. So I had the key to the new house on my key ring. But there are a number of keys on this key ring. When I got over to the house, there was a bit of irritation as I was trying each key, at least five keys, imagine that. 30 seconds of my life wasted and five keys. And there's this irritation. So then I came up with a master plan. What I do is I leave the keys in the door. So I won't have to go fiddling through the five keys again, the whole five keys. So I left them in the door. And then I remembered that it was one of these little tester paints for, you know, which color the hall's going to be. And I left it in the other house, which is a hundred yards away, a whole hundred yards. <laughs> I stride back, slightly irritated, that I had to go back to the house to get this tester tube. And halfway there, I suddenly realized that the keys are in the other hand. So at that stage, like a string of curses come out of me. And, you know, it's as if life is unfair. But then I asked myself, is 50 yards, is that what it is? That one will become miserable for 50 yards? Now, once you ask that question, of course, it dissolves on the instant. The thing to realize is that misery is caused by making something small very large and making something that will pass permanent. That's what you watch out for. And so the thing is always to broaden your perspective. It's like this. if I say I happen to be married for 28 or 29 years and let's say, particularly in the past, have we had our arguments? Yes, we've had our arguments. And it could be over a tiny thing. And there would be an explosive argument, and I would write off the entire marriage as a complete waste from day one. And 
Why didn't I listen to the budgery guard when he was advising me? But if you do something, if you've been married a while and, you, and you're blessed with a, a remarkable wife, and you remind yourself of this amazing woman and how she has enriched your life and all the wonderful things that she's brought into your life and her loyalty and steadiness and all these qualities, and you hold those in your heart, then it's very, very difficult to get angry. Because you have this broad, broad perspective. The whole key is to have this broad, broad perspective. It's a very good thing to ask, if you want to, that all misery or all anger is caused by a desire being frustrated. If I want to get to the airport on time and there's a lot of cars on the road, my desire to get to the airport on time is being frustrated, so I get angry with all other cars on the road. When you find anger or misery rising in your heart, ask yourself, is this desire reasonable? First of all, what is the desire that is being frustrated now? And secondly, is it reasonable? If you find yourself, as I said, in this traffic jam, and you want to be somewhere where you're not, is that reasonable? To want to be somewhere where you're not and to want there to be no cars on the roads in Ireland? It's obviously ludicrous. And if you put these questions to the mind, it will suddenly become reasonable and it will drop this intensity and this narrowness. So that's a very, very useful thing to do. And if you do that, you'll find that... We don't become really miserable over big things. It's like leaving your keys and walking 50 yards away. It's that sort of thing. A hundred times a day, we let sorrow or misery or anger or something overcome us over tiny little things. The big things, we seem to be able to brace ourselves and meet the events. But the little things, they sort of get in and we've lost ourselves before we know it. If you practice this, if you practice asking yourself, well, what desire is being frustrated now? And is that a reasonable desire? You will find that it leads to an increasing freedom from these petty troubles. And then being free of them, you suddenly realize that this is what everybody's going through. And people are just being trapped by tiny little obstacles in their lives. And so instead of being annoyed with them, there is a sympathy a true sympathy. Not pity, but sympathy. In other words, you're with them. You understand what it is like. And again, I've used this example before, but it has happened of calling my son in to study, now when he's much, much younger, say eight or nine. And he might be in the middle of a football match and they'd be, you know, they'd be 5-4 up or 5-4 down. And you say, you have to come in. And you'd see this little bull approaching you. And as he would go by, he'd kick the ball at you, you know, brush past you, letting you know that he hated you with every molecule of his body at that point in time. Now, you can either go berserk and think, you know, how dare you look at or speak to your father like that or have that attitude to your father. Or you can just know what it is like to be an eight-year-old boy, to be called into study three-quarters of the way through a football match. And once you know that, you might say to that, don't do that, but you're smiling on the inside. Yes, there's a lady here. Well, I'm sorry, if you can wait one more minute, yes. 
Good evening, Shane. I was just uh, listening with interest when you said about people who aren't ready for help or don't want help. And it's been my observation that sometimes that I've witnessed compassionate acts when people are actually silent, I suppose, as a road into these people wanting help. And I just wanted to get your view on, on that. So I could just say that again to me? I've witnessed some of the huge acts of compassion I've witnessed is where someone is in need of help, but it's actually by you being silent. Absolutely. Um, and I just wanted to get your view on that. Yeah, absolutely. We're very quick to give advice. And sometimes people are not looking for, if you want to call it, your solution. They simply want somebody to share the problem with. And it's in the sharing of the problem that they're relieved of the problem. Because there may not be a solution. Somebody could have died. You can't bring them back to life. So what they're looking for is that somebody effectively carries or helps to carry the burden. And the best way to carry the burden is through silence. Where you simply open your heart so that the person can enter into your heart. If a person has a very troubled heart, let them walk into yours. If your heart is at peace and it's full of happiness or love, let them walk in and let them stay there. Let them sit in your heart. And you'll find, this was my experience, Leon McLaren, who was the most remarkable man that I ever met, who founded the School of Philosophy. And there'd be times that I wouldn't see him for three or six months. And I would sort of gather my problems together so then I could just offload on him when I met him. Hey, Mr. McLaren, can I meet you? And he'd say, oh, absolutely. He'd say, you can come between 2 and 20 past 2. I think, gosh, I, I only have warmed up to <laughs> the misery of my life by 20 past 2. But this is what happened. Sometimes I would write down all my problems so that I wouldn't forget one. And then you would go and sit with him and... He might just say, hello, Shane, how are you? And would you like a cup of tea? And he wouldn't start and wait for the tea to arrive. And you would just be sitting in his presence. And his presence was amazing. It was like being bathed in love and peace and bliss. And eventually, when you got to speak, you couldn't remember your problems. They'd all gone. In fact, you didn't need the 20 minutes anymore. Sometimes it'd be over in 10 minutes. You would try and justify the meeting by resurrecting some problem. So that's what it was like. So silence is incredibly powerful. When, when I say silence, I mean not a frozen silence, obviously. Not a, I'm not willing to communicate, but a silence that really communicates. If you really want to help people, the primary thing to do is to become an excellent listener rather than an excellent advisor. And when the listening is finished and there is maybe a need to say something, well then say something to finish it off. But in the listening, the real embracing of the other person, the vast majority of things are resolved. So you, your observation is correct. There's a, a lady here. Uh, sorry, you mentioned that um, it was challenging for us to start to practice true compassion and so therefore I would assume that for an eight-year-old boy it would be twice as hard again absolutely so as a mother of said boy how 
do I help him to be compassionate towards the people who make his life a misery at school? And not just his, you know, but it's, it's nothing personal to him, but, you know, they, ha they go through a really tough time at school. So it's difficult to get him to see the other perspective. And then how do I practice myself also to feel compassion for those children who make my child's life a misery at school? Well, are you talking about bullies? Yes. Right. The reason that you would feel compassion for a bully is that you wouldn't want your own son to be a bully. Because it would be a terrible state of heart that you would terrify the weak and the innocent. So if you just remember that to have a bully's heart is a horrible state of the heart, you, then you will naturally have compassion for the bully. So that's the first thing. The second thing is it has to be dealt with because you've got an eight-year-old son and he has, a, you know, an eight-year-old boy or girl will have a very open heart and it's very easy to mark that heart. You know, it's like their skin. If you pinch their skin, they've got a red mark for hours afterwards. So the bullying has to stop. It's as simple as that. And you can, there are many ways of stopping it. One is you say to the school, I will sue. It's as simple as this. You write a letter. You write a letter to the governors. The headmaster doesn't take appropriate action. You write to the governors. And you say, there will be publicity and a suit unless appropriate action is taking place. Or you can solve it yourself. Sometimes it is possible to solve it yourself. And, and I've told this story before, and this is with a, an older boy. This, the boy was 12, and he was my son. I came home one evening late from the School of Philosophy and he's waiting up for me, so I knew there was trouble. And then I could see the two streaks down here, you know, where the tears had flowed for hours. And he says, I'm being bullied at school. And he says, you have to do something about it. So I said, I'm not doing anything about it. He says, you're going to deal with it. I said, tell me about it. So he told me what was happening. There was a boy who was bullying him and basically he was thumping him. And I said to him, all right, well, what I want you to do is every time he hits you, I want you to thump him back. And he said, but we're not allowed. The rules of the schools are you're not allowed to thump. I said, I'm giving you permission. I will take the rap from the headmaster if needs be. Every time he hits you, you are to hit him back. And he said, but he's bigger than me. I said, it's irrelevant. The only thing is every time he hits you, you are to thump him back. And he said, but I'll start to cry. And I said, through the tears. You hit him back. And he said, are you sure this is going to work? <laughs> and I said, I said, I want you to trust me. I want you to trust your father. I said, do you trust me? He said, yes, I do. I said, will you do what I'm saying? That every time he hits you, you are to hit him back. He said, yes, I will. I said, all right. Now that you've said that, I will give you the final bit of advice. And that is, when he hits you and you hit him back, you tell him that you will always hit him back every time he hits you and that you will never, ever, ever give up. And you look him in the eye and you tell him that. Never, ever, ever give up. I said, are you all right with that? He said, yes, off you go. So anyway, I come back late the next night and there's this little miniature Rambo sitting <laughs> On the couch, bristling with muscles and success and victory and all that. I said, how did it go? He said, excellently. I said, what happened? Well, he said, he thumped me and I thumped him back. And then we were going down the stairs. He tried to trip me up and I tripped him back. And then he followed me into the toilets and he said, you're dead, Mulhall. Right? <laughs> and so, 
And he said, and I looked him straight in the eye and I said, every time you hit me, I will hit you back and I will never, ever, ever give up. And the other boy said, okay, let's forget about it. (laughs) And then I explained to my son, and the sequence is very, very important. I said, you need to understand that every bully is a coward and you must always stand up to the bully. And you say, well, why was that advice given? Well, first of all, because my son is quite capable of taking care of himself. And fear was ruling his heart. And if I had stepped in to do it, it would not have helped him. The next bully would have just got to him. So it was important as a 12-year-old that he began to take responsibility for the situations he found himself in. The second thing, the bully, who I happen to know, there's nothing particularly wrong with him. There's certain traits in his being, all right. But it was necessary for him to stop this behavior for his sake or else he was going to become a remarkably unpopular human being that was one solution but other times you have to talk to the headmaster and you have to make an absolute nuisance of yourself but bullying cannot go on particularly at that age and coming up to 10 ideas can form in the mind of a human being that they live with for all their lives the idea just takes hold and it goes into the heart and it might be that I am a coward or the best thing is to run away, or something like that. And you'll find that then he will run away from everything in his life. He'll run away from responsibility, or one day if he's married and there are challenges in the marriage, he'll run away from it. It's not something that should be allowed to prevail. And even in the end, if it means changing school, well then, for the sake of the young man's heart, that has to be done. The best thing of all is that the bully is stopped from bullying. You know, expelling bullies doesn't help bullies. They need to learn. It's a pity to be a coward. So you teach the bully to be brave. And once you teach him to be brave, he stops being a bully. Which is interesting, because you might think, well, if if he was brave, he'd bully all the more. But in fact, he stops. In schools of old, and it's done in the John Scotus School, and I think it's a really nice thing, is that they have a form teacher, well, they have it all for junior school, and then they have another one for senior school. But in days of old, you had the one teacher who took you all the way up for 14 years. So this man or woman knew you from the inside. Let's say I was a form teacher, and you find yourself with this boy who has a tendency to bully. You have 14 years to work with him or her, to relieve them of that tendency. To accept responsibility for the bully's life and for the bullied life. So, okay. Yes, was there any other question? I just wondered if you thought the Shankacharya would have given the same answer to the bullying question. I'm sure it would have been a far better answer. <laughs> I was meeting my, uh, my son, and there you know, the tears down his eyes, and he was shaking, and he was obviously distressed. It was very important that anger didn't arise against the bully, or anything. It was important to stay connected with this young man who was facing a, you know, a very challenging situation for him. If somebody had asked me a theoretical question 15 minutes before that, that advice would not have arisen. It wasn't anything that was known in advance. Just as he began to speak and one stayed with him, it became obvious the way to deal with this. 
and you wouldn't necessarily give the same advice to another child because they would have a different nature. I, I read a book recently, well not recently, the last couple of years about St. Francis of Assisi and sometimes you get these biographies of saints. One mistake the writers often make is they accuse these saints of inconstancy or preference. Now the reality is, if the person is a saint, true saint or real saint, they're not inconstant and they don't show preference. But people are judging from the outside their behaviour. And if I can give an example again of Ramakrishna, this man who died of throat cancer, and there's a lovely story told about him. What happened was one of his disciples was on a boat going across a river and there were some young men and they began to ridicule Ramakrishna and speak very badly of him. And the disciple got really angry with them. So he, he rose to his master's defense and he you know, gave out to them and all that sort of stuff. So when he went back to the ashram, he told Ramakrishna the incident and Ramakrishna gave out to him. And he said, the truth needs no defending. You must retain stillness and peace and be quiet within yourself. And all the other disciples heard this. And anyway, about a month later, another disciple is somewhere else and there's some other people giving out about Ramakrishna. So he remembers absolute silence, peace, say nothing. And he goes back to the ashram and he tells Ramakrishna what he did and Ramakrishna gives out to him. And he says, do you not have any love for me? Would you not stand up for me? Am I not worthy of defense? And of course now the disciples are totally confused. Have they got a schizophrenic master or what is the story? But as was explained by, I think, Wee Kananda, who was one of his major disciples, he said, the first man was full of anger. So the advice to him that when Ramakrishna has been attacked, he needed to develop equanimity and peace because the trait in his being that needed attending to was anger. The second disciple, the one who remained silent and got given out to, the dominant negative trait in his being was fear. So what was necessary for him was to learn to stand for truth. So the advice, albeit apparently contradictory, was perfect for two different people. So never, never think of repeating yourself or saying because that worked on Tuesday, it will work on Wednesday. The key is to stay connected. And so with compassion, your heart is always open. Never think you know the person. You don't even know yourself. So stay completely open. And if you stay open, what you find is fresh knowledge arises from where you know not. You'll be as surprised as the other person is by the advice you give. When your heart is really open like that, you find that you learn an awful lot from your advice. You think, God, that's very interesting. <laughs> that could really work. And that's delightful when you're not working from the past, but some fresh new knowledge has just arisen in this open heart. And that's the way to be all the time. So, I think we should leave it at that. Thank you very much.